Hello, and welcome to the Next Year in Payments, a podcast series brought to you by Linklaters. I'm Peng Chua, and I'm joined today by Niranjan Arasaratnam to explore developments in the payments industry in Asia in a year to come and beyond. Asia has seen a huge growth in its payments industry over the last few years, both in its developed and emerging markets. According to a recent report, the digital payments market in Southeast Asia is expected to grow from 600 billion today to cross 1 trillion by 2025, accounting for almost one in every two dollars spent in the region. The region has seen unprecedented technological and regulatory change, which has significantly altered the competitive landscape of the industry. This growth is driven by a variety of demographic and economic factors, which in turn has made the region ripe for investment and innovation. In this session, The View from Asia, we will cover the payment industry growth factors, examples in emerging and developed markets, the regulator's perspective, and what's next. Great, thanks Paying. Uh, as Paying said, we have seen huge growth in the payments industry in Asia. This has been spurred on by two key factors. One is demographics. Today, there are around 360 million users in Southeast Asia, with over 90% connecting to the internet, primarily through their mobile phones. Uh, a large proportion of these are young adults who are tech savvy with increased spending power. So uh, the e-commerce industry, uh, and in turn the demand for digital payment solutions, is only expected to grow and grow. The second factor is the push for financial inclusion. In many emerging markets, a large percentage of the population remains underbanked. Only one quarter of the adults in Southeast Asia enjoy full access to financial services, uh, almost half remain unbanked and do not own a bank account. This is partly due to the high cost of building out banking infrastructure and establishing reliable credit and identification systems in more rural areas. Technology is able to offer solutions to bridge the gap like mobile banking and the use of, of e-wallets. So we are seeing the use of technology really promoting social goals and, and aims. Um, perhaps also uh, another factor, not as strong as the others, is that just with the geopolitical events between China and the US, we are finding in Southeast Asia that there is an increased amount of investment funds flowing into the region, uh, and Southeast Asia is the beneficiary of that increased investment. Thanks, Naranjan. Let's have a look at emerging markets. I think we can look at China as a clear example of growth due to those two factors. It has one of the largest retail e-commerce markets in the world, expected to reach USD 1.7 trillion by 2020. Two-thirds of online sales and increasingly offline sales are made through mobile wallets like Alipay and WeChat Pay. Already by 2017, more than three quarters of Chinese individuals were using digital payments in preference to cash. This has partly been spurred on by the inconvenience of traditional banking in rural areas, but likely due also to the all-in-one apps offered by Chinese tech companies. Social, e-commerce and payment functions are all available under a single app, and very popular with the younger generation. We are also seeing this in Southeast Asia. Grab, Asia's unicorn, started as a ride-hailing app, 
but has now expanded to offer food delivery and e-wallet services. Users can pay for rides or their food via e-wallets or have the option of linking their credit or debit cards to the app. Increasingly, digital payment apps are turning into a lifestyle commodity, especially in emerging markets. The payments industry is growing into something that aims to improve your lifestyle. It's bespoke, integrated and adding value. The rise in these payment apps have enabled emerging markets to leapfrog traditional banking infrastructure, signaling a revolution in the payments industry. This will aid the creation of state-of-the-art payments ecosystems in the region, which will set the pace for markets worldwide. A key question then is, how are more developed financial markets that are integrated and reliant on traditional banking infrastructure going to ensure that they keep up with this rate of innovation and growth in the payments industry? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Peying. I think growth and innovation does look a little different in these developed markets. Generally, in these markets, we've seen traditional financial institutions take some key steps to build on and improve their existing payments infrastructure, uh, ensuring speed and stability and reliability. So to take two examples, um, one here in Singapore, we've seen growth in the use of online banking apps and the push for faster payment services. So we have FAST, short for fast and secure transfers, which was launched in 2014 and is an electronic funds transfer service that enables customers to, uh, of these participating banks to transfer Singapore dollar funds from one bank to another in Singapore almost instantly. In 2017, PayNow was launched, building on the FAST system, and that enables users to make mobile payments to each other, now with the use of the recipient's designated mobile number or ID number instead of the really cumbersome and long-winded bank details, which is always an impediment for, for making fast and efficient transfers. In Hong Kong, we've seen a similar development with the introduction of the Faster Payment System, or FPS. The FPS is open to all banks and e-wallet operators in Hong Kong and enables customers to make cross-bank and e-wallet payments easily with the use of the recipient's mobile number or email address. The FPS operates on a 24-7 basis and funds are transferred immediately. So on the whole, what we've seen in the development in these more progressed markets, the system has been quite successful. There's a very high take-up rate. Um, over half the population has registered with the system with an average of more than 140,000 transactions a day. Clearly, a lot has developed in, the, in these developed markets. Japan, however, is an interesting outlier in that it's a more developed financial market, yet its take-up of cashless payments is very low, only about 20% in comparison to China's 66% and Korea's 96%. Although many convenience stores and large retailers allow various payment methods, many small enterprises still only accept cash. This is likely due to a few factors. Cash is trusted and commonly used, and the cost of processing credit card and e-money transactions are quite high. But a key reason is likely the lack of a dominant electronic payment network that is universally accepted. However, regulators in Japan are taking steps to fix this. 
In June last year, the amended Banking Act came into force in Japan, imposing obligations on banks to work with electronic payment intermediate service providers to encourage a better connected financial market. Also, it was announced earlier this year that several Japanese companies will work with Alibaba and Tencent to roll out a standardized QR code in Japan, yet another step towards streamlining and encouraging cashless payments in the country. So, Paying mentioned the Japanese banking regulator.、Um, let's just pause to get the regulator's perspective. So, on the whole,、um, we have seen regulators really being very encouraging. Uh, towards the build out of the payments industry in Asia.、Um, and there's been a real incentive for regulators to push towards cashless payments and the development of their payments infrastructure.、Um, it facilitates transparency, it helps combat fraud, it promotes access to savings, and it encourages online spending. And we all know that there is a positive correlation between the growth of online spending and GDP growth. Um, I suppose one other aspect that is really key is it helps to facilitate tax collections as well and gives greater transparency on、um, transactions to assist in collecting VAT across these jurisdictions. So I think two key regulatory trends can be observed. One,、uh, there is a push to open markets to financial technology and in- innovation. And two, there's a focus on user protection and financial stability. Uh, and the steps to be taken to overcome fragmentation of payment services. Thanks, Nuranjan. Let's have a look at the key regulatory trends that you mentioned. The first being looking at the push to open markets to fintech, financial technology, and innovation. So, regulators have a unique role, and they have the power to adjust the payments ecosystem through regulatory interventions. Increasingly, we are seeing regulators act to encourage the adoption of financial technology or amend existing regulations to facilitate innovation. In China, authorities have asked officials in rural areas to expand internet av- availability, make more public services digital, and facilitate the sale of rural produce to consumers in the cities. This push would also enable farmers to buy necessities such as. Fertilizer and improve their access to loans. Major Chinese tech companies like Alibaba and JD have also set up online services to help farmers buy and sell. In India, the National Payments Corporation, in collaboration with the Reserve Bank of India, has developed payment services like the UPI, Unified Payment Interface, to improve the ease of transactions for peer to peer and retail e payments. UPI is a smartphone app that allows users to transfer monies between bank accounts without the need to enter bank details or other sensitive information every time a transaction is initiated. Uptake has been really high, over 100 million users have registered. How about Japan? Well, in Japan, the Act on Prevention of Transfer of Criminal Proceeds was amended to enable banks and financial services providers to conduct eKYC checks using digital identification and authentication, like the customer's transmission of their photo ID along with a picture of the customer. Similar regulations have been introduced in Singapore, and all of this demonstrates a move to accommodate the use of technology in traditional financial services. Yes, there's been、um, also quite a, a concern over user protection.、Um, and so we've been seeing regulators introduce legislation and guidelines to protect users. In Singapore, we've had the Payment Services Act 
being introduced by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and it was passed earlier this year to regulate key payment activities such as e-money issuance, domestic and cross-border money transfer services, and digital payment token services. The Payment Services Act was drafted with the recognition that new payment business models enabled by evolving technology were really blurring the lines between regulated activities and those falling outside of the remit of existing regulatory protections. So the Payment Services Act uses a modular risk-based framework to maintain user protections while ensuring there remains room for innovation and the adoption of e-payments. Thanks, Duranjan. Let's have a look at the final key regulatory trend, which are the steps taken to overcome fragmentation. So payment fragmentation remains a key concern and is an area that regulators are focusing on because a lack of interoperable payments infrastructure will affect the development of cashless payments. We have seen developments in this area in Thailand, who has introduced a standardized QR code for payments. Five banks have been approved to offer QR code payment services, and customers from any of these five banks will be able to use their mobile banking apps to scan retail merchants' QR codes to make payment. And therefore, there will not be a need to use cash and credit cards. Retailers, in particular SME operators, that are not able to afford payment terminals, can now also accept e-payments simply and cheaply. Similar solutions are being explored in Indonesia, where the payments ecosystem is growing, but is challenged by the lack of interoperability. Various e-wallet operators have rolled out QR codes, but these are unique to their businesses and cannot be shared. In August this year, the Bank of Indonesia issued a regulation for the implementation of a national QR code standard, which will help to streamline payments. So that's something to keep an eye out for. In Singapore, in September last year, a new unified QR code was launched and that replaced more than 19,000 versions of the QR codes in the market. The Singapore QR code streamlines both domestic and international QR code payments into a single label, with payment schemes such as PayNow, Nets, GrabPay, LiquidPay and Singtel Dash all on board. Also, new payments legislation, the Payment Services Act, which Nuranjan mentioned, will grant the MES powers to require interoperability among payment institutions, like mandating payment services businesses to participate in a commonly used platform. The Singapore regulator, the MES, has said, however, that such powers will be exercised judiciously and only when it is clear that significant benefits and outcomes will be achieved. So, what's next? Um, you would have seen uh, a couple of themes from um, our podcast. One is that there is just huge growth in the payments industry and that uh, will continue. And the second is that regulators have been addressing their concerns, but also implementing regulations that facilitate the growth of the payments industry. So now looking forward, what do we expect to see? Uh, I think it's fair to say that it's going to be pretty exciting. We've got Hong Kong and Singapore uh, introducing digital banking uh, regimes. We have China exploring a central bank digital currency. And there's also talk between various Southeast Asian jurisdictions on implementing payment system interoperability, enabling seamless cross-border transactions. Um, and so we are really looking at the payments industry continuing to evolve. Uh, influenced by those macro demographics 
our e-commerce growth and regulatory action. Yes, uh, Niranjan, I agree. And going forward, I think a key factor to ensure continued investment and growth in the payments industry will be legal and regulatory certainty. This is a particular concern in emerging markets. Investors can take on risks as significant resources are required to start and scale businesses. So a lack of clarity in regulations may mean that the entire business model may become unworkable at short notice. So governments and policy makers will have a large part to play in providing a supportive legal and regulatory framework. Now, that's all we have time for today. Niranjan, thanks very much for joining me and thank you too for listening. Do join us again for our next episode. Until then, goodbye.